0: Welcome to another episode of Urban Life Enabled, Hub's podcast for sharing news, views, and stories about connecting, activating, and measuring urban life in our public places and spaces. My name is Adam Beck, and I'll be with you for the next little while as we unpack another topic relevant to enabling urban life. So let's go. In this panel session, we have three experts from the urban technology and planning and design field that join us, Georgia Vitali, Chris Pettit, and Jessica Christensen-Franks. Georgia is Practice Leader of Urban Strategy and Social Outcomes at Grimshaw, and prior to that, she was an Associate Principal for Cities at Arup. Chris is currently the Director of City Futures Research Centre and Professor of Urban Science at the University of New South Wales. And prior to that, he was Associate Professor at the Australian Urban Research Infrastructure Network, or Oren. And Jessica, she's founding director of the global urban tech company, Neighborlytics. And prior to that, she was CEO and managing principal of the consultancy co-design studio. Jess is a landscape architect by trade. Chris has a master's degree and PhD in town planning, and George's qualifications are in social impact indeed a power panel to have this discussion around measuring urban life in our cities so friends thanks for joining us for this conversation around measuring urban life particularly in our public places and spaces i'd like to kick off by really going back to a fundamental question i believe which is why do we think we want to do this Uh, how have we gotten to this uh this place this point in time Chris, I'd love to uh, to get your views on this. Why is is this an important kind of area or dialogue that we need to pursue?
1: Well, Adam, measuring urban life is, is absolutely critical that we have that evidence, that approach, those metrics. So if we're looking at sustainable cities, if we're looking at resilient cities, equitable cities, productive cities, however you'd like to frame the city and the urban environment, how do we know the performance of that city and how can we then look at that say sustainability we're looking at net zero cities how is the building stock actually performing what do we need to do to actually move towards net zero cities so what evidence through these metrics can we give decision makers policy makers planners so we can actually meet those goals of making more livable prosperous cities
0: Georgia you've been really looking at social elements of life in cities for a long time. Why why is this important from your perspective?
2: Well, I, I think, Adam, I mean, we've come a really long way from just looking at, say, you know, the Mercer's quality of living ranking, you know, Monocle's, um, you know, their own sort of quality of life surveys, and and those are really geared towards um, really comparing cities. It was really about, particularly the, the Mercer one, it was about expats and looking at, um, you know, relocations, packages, and for big multinational companies. And and that they were really used at the time purportedly to sort of look at, you know, what makes a good city great Um, but they weren't really understanding or looking at the differences within cities so they weren't really understanding that sort of dynamic process of livability um, that sort of the fact it's constantly evolving and those notions of actually what quality of life looks like, difference from place to place and person to person. So I think um, just in terms of, you know, where we've come from, there's been a lot of change. And I think, you know, while Australian cities are really regularly featured really highly amongst these kinds of of global lists, I think um, there's a real much better understanding now. And I think to, to Chris's point about understanding kind of data and evidence base, that the differences within cities are really critical. So those livability assets um, Are not evenly distributed. So um, a whole bunch of academics, the, the work say from uh, Billy Giles, Courtney, and other, others, has been really fundamental to understand those differences, and then to start to sort of supplement the data side of things with lived experiences. And um, and, I, and I think that sort of soft data element has been really important in terms of, of unpacking this issue in a much deeper way.
0: Jess, I know that you guys have a very interesting business, but also background in placemaking and uh, landscape architecture, and and great city shaping. Really, um, you, uh, you you're sort of really deep in the data world, you know. Now, uh, technology and data world. Now, um, what, what what's your view on where we're at and why this is important?
3: Yeah, well, I think the important part of this question isn't why should we measure cities? It's why should we measure the urban life in cities? And it's actually not a nice to have. Urban life, yeah, is great on a marketing brochure and it's good for selling things and all that. But actually, when it comes down to it, every city project is actually about shaping the urban life in some way. And so we can get clouded by the economic metrics like apartment sales and vacancy rates and those things. But at the end of the day, every project, even a a tunnel project, is about shaping the way that people live in the city. So if we want to actually be accountable for making better cities as the city-making industry, we need to be measuring the outcome that we're trying to create. And that historically has been very hard to do, which is why our industry has perhaps used proxies and spent a lot of time measuring the physical environment and counting cars and those things. But now because, and I think we'll unpack this further in this chat because of a lot of technical advances we now can actually measure the way people live what they value what they do and so as a frustrated landscape architect for 20 years I was sick of using proxies of well there's 24 year olds using this park now let's assume something about them to see what they want and we started using things like Instagram and TripAdvisor to look at how people actually use neighbourhoods and that's become the core of how we think about measuring urban life.
0: So that that really prompts the question, really important question about how do we do this? Now, the caveat to this question is that I'm a real standards nerd and I'm a firm believer of kind of crystal clear, black and white, you know, guidance on how to do something. I believe that if we we sort of don't have standards, um, anything will do, right? So I'd like to explore that now in terms of process and you know i've I've got here with me practitioners and you know an academic you know both of those areas inform policy we hope so where are we at with process and standards or do we just you know what it's it's fine let's just all proceed the way we're doing and you know we'll we'll sort of see how it turns out chris um is there anything you can share around methodologies, frameworks, is there anything that resembles some sort of common approach to this?
1: Uh, well, it's a, it's a really interesting area, Adam, because we, we don't have defined detailed recipes that are agreed from the community level up to councils and national even global Organizations on what those those indicators are. And they're shifting. It, 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 we've also got this um, values of data that we hear about. So there's always new ways we can move from the census that's been around for thousands of years. Um, back in Roman times when we were counting cows and animals, um, you know, and, and understanding what that meant for the prosperity of, of the city, all the way now to looking at CCTV and tracking via phones and running machine learning. So the the whole area, the whole measurement area um, is is still moving at a frightening speed. But I think what we need to do is is make sure we're not just measuring for the sake of measuring. We need to be able to look at things like, if you look globally at the Sustainable Development Goals, that provides a framework that globally we're working towards um, as a planet 2030. So some of those indicators in SDG 11 around transport accessibility and access to housing, we can measure. And um, there's communities have been set up around the world to try and measure the performance of those particular um, indices for cities. Um, you know, we, we, we set that down nationally. We have an evolving national urban policy, um, I guess very live at the moment and being um, put together under the, the, the leadership of our new prime minister. Um, but what does that mean for our national framework and how we report, you know, those, those urban policies? S- state-based strategies, like in New South Wales, they recently released an active transport strategy. What are the metrics to look at micromobility and walkability and cyclability? Um, and then going down to local planning or even precinct strategies, if we're looking at the performance of those precincts, there isn't a set recipe. I think there, there is... The need to have a, a broad conversation like we are today around what are the important ingredients and what are those agreed upon must-haves um but i think for me essentially we, when we're looking at this measuring and monitoring we have to link it to policy and governance and indicators um that mean something to our decision makers i've Jessen, got a bit of
3: a different perspective to share if i may yeah and and, and while i I agree wholeheartedly that standards are really important because um, it offers us the ability to to then compare, and that is where we get really powerful learnings and change. But also there's been so much technical advancement in the last decade around what we can actually measure now. Perhaps even more important than standards is just the standardisation of what we're measuring so, that we can compare. And what I mean by that is that now we can understand and track and map so many different parts of how people, for argument's sake, um, use a public space. Uh, just by standardizing what we're measuring, we can then compare places together rather than too quickly try to compute that into a score about how well something is doing. And to give an example of that, I think the reason we as an industry have focused so much on measuring the physical space for so long rather than the lifestyle is because there's a standardised way of doing that. We do it in metres, we do it in, you know, rental values, we do it in things that we can look at it in one place, look at it in another and then compare it. But that becomes a bit of a distraction. We then get obsessed with how many square metres of park are there rather than how well is that park used? How, how much time do people spend there? How far are people coming from to use that? So I think standards is an important discussion but there's also so much power in descriptive analytics and standard standards aren't descriptive typically they're much more about comparison and diagnostic analytics and it just serves a different purpose
0: yeah georgia <laughs> I, yes. I i um i can't help but think just knowing that you hang out with a lot of architects a lot of the time um <laughs> i i i would imagine that sort of data and analytics the use of technology standardization I'd imagine that that at times potentially is a struggle for some professions to sort of really embrace Um, we've all been around those kind of master planning urban design tables with many disciplines and the butter's paper is you know being ripped off and the third layer is going on and the magic of the crayon and the pens and the And the brain's trust around the table is sort of what really matters. How do you find this sort of concept in a lot of the work that you and and your colleagues do at Grimshaw's?
2: I think um, the, the process of measuring for us really is about is being driven by um the outcomes and the impact that we're wanting to achieve on a particular project. So really that that's the start of, of our conversation. Our architects are now becoming uh used to a theory of change and some different ways of actually exploring this. But I think Adam, you're right, is in terms of that sort of Performance and, and standards and, and metrics. I think you know our architects, for example, they've become really accustomed to that as as a consequence of all of the environmental performance and and, and working to those um kind of standards but i think because it you know it's a dynamic process and i think it really is about um you know in relation to a local context and that alignment of stakeholders around you know what are the shared objectives that we're wanting it to achieve and we'll come to to how we measure it and the metrics um later so it it is starting with those really strategic conversations. Um, It's probably also worth noting um, just in terms of what what others are doing as well. So the Urban Land Institute actually undertook a global study back in 2021 and they're looking at social values and more broadly thinking about environmental, social um, and economic well-being, but for real estate and for our sector. And they found that um, most of the respondents are actually using um, existing well established environmental assessment tools of the, the BREAMS and the, the LAMs and, 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 and the LEADS or in the wells of the world. So that's where they are. And I think, you know, SDGs also, to, to, to Chris's point, you know, rates it quite highly. but. Um, about a quarter of the survey respondents are actually using their own bespoke in-house tools. So it really is thinking about what what is best sort of fit for them, fit for purpose. And for us here at Grimshaw, it's really that place context, it's a needs analysis, and then understanding metrics later.
0: Can I can I can I ask a, a quick follow up question to that? I'd be interested in in particularly Jess and Georgia. Are our professional bodies and and peak bodies and professional associations having this conversation and is it happening enough Jess I don't know where you hang out these days in terms of representative bodies in the work that you do but but certainly Georgia you know AIA and the Planning Institute and and, and others where are we at with that kind of leadership in this space And, and Chris certainly share your thoughts as well
2: yeah, I, I would just um, one one point is the Property Council of Australia just last year released that new collective impact framework. Um, so I think that it's really interesting to see out of their own uh, social sustainability working group, they decided they needed a tool and they wanted to sort of benchmark across industry. So nothing's come out of that as yet in terms of results,
3: but that that's just one example of where things are going, mm. and that comes to the point of. Um, industry bodies are the perfect place to be having the discussion around what does good look like and asserting what should Australian industry be striving towards where are we already achieving that and where are our gaps and that's certainly happening um, property council are definitely leaders in that space and that piece of work's an example
0: yeah yeah Chris your views on this well I
1: mean from the Planning Institute of Australia there's the sort of their plan tech initiative I think there's still um that sort of understanding and grasping of what the, the 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 data sets and the ability and the methods to measure are moving so rapidly um you know being like you were saying before Jess, flexible on you know having that approach to compare apples to apples but not necessarily being that wedded to just saying there's one one way of comparing apples to apples and you know whether that's walkability or whatever it may be so I think from planning institute of Australia's perspective I'm involved in a national plan tech working group there's definitely an interest there what does this mean for planners as we you know design try and design more walkable um cyclable cities but you know I, I don't think any of the um bodies have you know agreed upon hard standards um but I think it's also an opportunity that that, that you know these different um organizations do you know share best practice and um yeah, how we might consider affordability because it's also these things differ, right? Housing affordability. Um, you know, you've got the the, the 30 um 30 rule or the 30-40, and there's some tweaks on, you know, how you might measure that. And so there are some sort of somewhat agreed standards for some, um, some metrics. Um, but I think that the role for having them championed by institutes is is important.
0: Can I ask a, maybe a little bit of an off-topic question, but but I think one that's quite interesting, and you'd all have had exposure to this, is is sort of fast and slow data. I was a planning student and practiced planning very briefly in the world of slow data, you know, ABS and other things, and then there was clipboards, and then we had websites, and and now we're counting the number of people in a space, you know, kind of every second, and it. Pipes through to our smartphone kind of thing or analytics and dashboards. And I don't want just sort of bits and bytes and numbers and words anymore. I want sort of an immersive experience in terms of what it's all saying. So, you know, it's kind of moved on pretty, pretty quickly. Are we um f- from a presentation of the output of whatever it is that we're measuring? How do you see that changing as well? It's no longer just about data, but we got to do something with it. We've got to generate insights. We're using different tools to do that. And then we want to immerse ourselves in it. You know, we want to visualize it, not just put it on a map anymore. I want to walk through it and fast forward and come back. Talk to me about that sort of not just having the data, but immersing ourselves in it.
3: I can uh I can give you the answer from our perspective. So so at Nabalytics, we've created a system for measuring urban life globally. So in doing that, you know, it wasn't easy and we've been doing it for six years, but we've had to assert certain positions on how we use data and what is good data to use and what's not in the um, mission of measuring the important aspects of urban life and describing them in a way that can be used and decisions can be taken from them. And that's why we've focused a lot on how has the industry already been measuring things and what is good to continue to measure in the old way and then what actually are the better ways of doing it now. And we often think about what we should be um, doing less of as an industry rather than that there being one like best practice mission that everyone should should subscribe to. There's so many um, developments in technology, you know every year that that means we've all got more data at our fingertips. I think it's more important to think about what we should do less of. and there's certainly the problematic types of data, um, that we've done historically is by using old data. So, I mean, COVID, we we, had, we were trying to talk to people a few years ago saying the cities are changing quickly. Now, you don't have to tell anyone that now, right? Like we all know overnight everything can change. And then next day lockdown's ended and things are different again, but how are they different? So there's no arguing anymore about, needing to understand dynamic data sets and there's so much dynamic data available that's really key we also need to be careful with data that's pre-aggregated and again that's just part of the standardization mission of things like the abs where data was pre-aggregated into geographic boundaries the postcodes or statistical areas which is fine, but it doesn't help you understand the lived experience of many neighbourhoods. Often the main street is the edge of a suburb by its geographical definition, yeah. not the centre. And we also need to just stop relying on demographics to suppose lifestyle. We can actually measure lifestyle now. Um, we shouldn't be any more saying, well, there's lots of 36-year-old women here. They're probably going to be having babies and buying country road. Like uh, it, It's just lazy to do that now. There's no need to do that kind of persona mapping.
0: Yeah, yeah. Can
1: I just chip in though, Jess, because I my view is that you need both I, the work that you're doing and analytics, and what what's that that sort of more that fast data, you know, with with sentiment analysis and other elements brought in is is absolutely necessary. But if we're looking at our cities, I think having that ABS data, that long data, is, still has its role, but it's not everything.
3: That's right. We
1: look at our cities, you know, how they evolve out to 2030, 2050. We have long-term plans. So that requires so that you know that slow data, which can be fused with, you know, vast data. And then obviously we've got a lot of changes since COVID, like you said. And so what, what are those immediate responses? What does it mean when we're trying to understand what we do with our building stock and commercial premises? And um, so the, I think there's still a need for both. Um, and, and you know we 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 need to look at that op- opportunity to fuse some of those data products together to to value add to you know the 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 fast and slow data streams.
0: Yeah, Georgia and I were chatting before we started, and we we're talking about big, lumpy infrastructure projects you know that can be in planning for ten years, you know, construction cycles of three to four, six years. Yeah, decades passed, you know, and it's sort mm. of we we've locked into that project, particular, you know, analysis, assessment, views, recommendations. That um, as we know, you know, the world changes pretty changes pretty quickly these days. So I, I find that a fascinating one. So my kind of last question to all of you is kind of where where does this, you know, where does this go now? We're we're in 2023, is kind of coming pretty quickly as you said Chris the global goals the UN sustainable development goals were were meant to be kind of viewing those as a bit of a north star um from your respective positions maybe Georgia will start with you uh where where do we go with with measuring urban life What what's kind of next I, I
2: think for us when we're looking at it um just you know, considering the amount of kind of greenwashing that's been going on and even social washing amongst um, business, I think just generally it looks like greater levels of transparency, greater levels of, of accountability. So this is not going away at all. So I think that kind of pressure from clients and stakeholders and shareholders, you know, that they want to understand, I think, Um, The other thing we're seeing as well is that interest in measuring across the entire project lifecycle. So obviously we're involved at the the design and the planning very strategic end, but I think, you know, understanding through operational, but the whole supply chain as well, um, issues like um you know construction workers health if we look at right through that whole life cycle there are a whole bunch of other things you know modern slavery legislation etc is um shining a light on and we're needing to consider I, i think that the last thing as well that that we're considering is you know it's much more um Well, in the past, it was primarily considering kind of the occupant of a building or the occupant of a particular precinct. But I think thinking about whether it is, say, population-wide health or or other kind of broader social needs that we need to consider outside the red line of our our building or our project, I think
1: that that's definitely where, where things are going.
0: Yeah. Chris, what about you? Where does this all go?
1: Well, I think um, there's a few areas that need to come together. I think we've we've got, you know, this open data movement, which has gone so far, and it's, you know, and ABS and others have been sort of leaders in having the the census data um, as open data that people can build, you know, commercial products or researchers can do work or anyone in the community can access and see what's happening in their neighbourhood. I think having that data, the new data feeds... Um, the the finer scaled spatial temporal data, having that more accessible, what we're seeing is a series of data lakes that are not connected um, and analytical lakes being set up, which is fantastic. But um, having that data, those data sets more open, um, I think it's still something that we need greater transparency and access because if this data can be used um, accordingly, it can be taken to treasury to argue for business cases for better infrastructure and social infrastructure, hard infrastructure, for example, cycleways, um, better parks. If we don't have that data and evidence easily um, accessible to many, um, we, we, we it's difficult to put forth those business cases. And I think there's platforms like Colouring Cities that comes out of the Turing Institute, um, open platforms that you could be plugging in your walkability, your cyclability metrics, um, communities of practice, you know, across the world that are running, they, if someone does a walkability index at City Futures or a Billy Giles group at RMIT, it's shareable. Yeah. Um, so it's repeatable. Um, you know, if Jess wanted to, you know, run some analytics, it might be that she could share that um, with a broader group via some of these platforms to get greater buy and, and greater, greater use and be able to plug in digital twins into these platforms too. So we have that more real-time 3D four-dimensional data I think there's still a lot of work to go in putting these um, data sets together for the metrics, but I think the openness and the transparency um, will help us then have those indicators that um, help shift the dial and making our cities more resilient. That's certainly
3: a trend yeah. we're seeing on the supplier end is that obviously there are these fantastic open source data sets that we can benefit from or our users want us to integrate with in some way, but also us, Uh, looking at the other data providers, we don't see them as competitors. We're we're in conversations with all of them talking about how we can put our data beside each other to have a more interesting data ecosystem. And I think the Australian property sector, um, if I may, got a bit overexcited in the last five years. And that we saw a lot of instances of heavy investment in like In house niche data sets. If you were trying to hire a data scientist in the last five years, you knew that pretty much every big company had some data scientists building some things in house. And we're starting to see a big turn away from that because niche in house data sets absolutely are important on project by project decisions to give you granularity. But what you miss by that is you miss broad scale comparative advantage Mm. by being able to compare outside of your own sites and across large geographies. And you also miss the benefit of technical and data advances that are happening so fast now. Now, if you're trying to in-house everything, you've got to literally upgrade your team all the time to try to benefit from those things. So that's a massive shift even in the last six months of the industry from an open data perspective, but also from a private supplier perspective, really coming together to create an ecosystem of data for the industry to use.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much, the three of you, for those final comments uh, and for joining us on the Urban Life Enabled podcast, Georgia and Chris and Jess, thank you very much for your precious time. We look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you. Thanks, Adam.
1: Thanks, Adam. Thanks.
0: Well, we hope you like this episode of Urban Life Enabled. Remember, if you'd like to subscribe, head to your favourite podcast platform, you'll find us there. Just search for Urban Life Enabled You can also head along to our website to listen to all of our episodes and also find out more information about Life Enabled. Just head to the website lifeenabled.com. There's a hyphen between Life and Enabled. Thanks for joining us.